You're listening to The Caring View. Hello and welcome to The Caring View, the online podcast and chat show available on YouTube, LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook and all various podcasting sites. Uh, today is episode two of our inspirational leaders, influencers, entrepreneurs in social care. If you remember, in the first episode, we spoke with Rebecca Coles, who was the youngest registered manager in the country. Um, and Rebecca did an episode for us around the importance of the apprenticeships in social care, how it really benefited her and the sort of wonder it is to work in social care and how wonderful it is for people to join and the different ways in which people can come through. Um, I'm really excited today. I, you know, I'm Adam Pennell, one of your hosts. I'm joined by my, my, my co-host, Mark Tops. Hello, hello. Um, and we've also got a fantastic guest with us today, uh, Dr. Charles Armitage. Charles, is it is it right? Can I call you doctor? Uh, technically, yes, you can call me doctor. I'd rather you <laughs> just call me Charles, but uh, yeah. Well, yeah. wonderful to join uh, for you to join us today, Charles. Charles, do you want to just do a bit of an introduction about who you are and what you do? Sure. Thanks, Adam and Mark. Great to be on, invited on the podcast. It's a real pleasure. So I am, uh, my name's Charles. I am uh, was in a previous life uh, and still am actually a doctor. Um, uh, and I practiced medicine for about five years. Uh, but the last five years, I've been spending building a company called Florence, which I co-founded and I'm now the CEO of. Um, and that's been a really wild journey the last five or six years, actually. Um, and what we do at Florence is a few things, but broadly, um, we're here to build the technology to power the health and social care workforce. That's what we, we're trying to do. That's honestly, and you know, we, we say I've followed your journey, I've seen it over the last couple of years, and obviously we've, we've, we've spent time on panels together before, and I think it's incredible what Florence is achieving. Now, this is a series all around influencers, innovators, entrepreneurs. Mm. Bit of a question, Charles. Are you an entrepreneur? Do you class yourself as an entrepreneur? Uh, yes, I think I, think I do. Um, I never used to, and I never really thought of myself um, I didn't actually even know what an entrepreneur was really necessarily when I was a doctor. Um, and I still don't necessarily know what it is, but I guess it's someone who I think uh, likes doing the things I like doing, which is um, building things, uh, taking some risks and like seeing problems that exist in the world and trying to solve them with neat solutions. And, and, I, and I love all of those three things. So on that basis, I guess I'm an entrepreneur, yeah. So, I mean, I know you've just given a bit of a, a sort of a, a background on what you, you think there, but what what is it, what, what's required to be this sort of successful entrepreneur? You know, we'll, we'll get into what you've achieved um, shortly yeah. in this conversation, but for anyone listening, what's required? Gosh, uh, lo loads of things. I think um, uh, what's required to be a successful entrepreneur? Many, many things. Uh, to pick a couple of them out that I think as like I go on this journey, the more I do it, the more I think that they're important. Probably number one is resilience and um, a willingness to kind of like stick it out when things are a little bit tough. Um, and like time again on like on my journey, there's definitely um, I've definitely realized that resilience. And I, I, I am, you know, without blowing my own trumpet, I'm a relatively resilient person. I'm, I'm, I, 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 I operate best in positions of like high stress and um when things are quite difficult and i don't know that's a bit about like my medical background maybe i used to really enjoy you know time in accident emergency trauma surgery and things like that and i used to get loads of energy from those like really high pressure um moments so uh resilience is something i think is really important things will go wrong the whole time uh, and it's uh the people that are able to i guess get back up again and bounce back that can that do well and resilience as well isn't something that you're necessarily you have or you don't have it's something you can train it's like a muscle um and the ability to be able to take those knockbacks and like get back up and go again is something that's like could be hugely trained so it's important uh, and it's something that everyone can build and then the second thing i think's um really important as well is uh being able to tolerate things like ambiguity and to take risks through those and um i think people's minds tend to work in different ways, but I'm definitely someone that is very bad 
at following a set instruction list of what to do. I kind of switch off and I actually end up being really bad at following that instruction list. But in a world of like ambiguity, when you don't really know what to do next, you're trying to work out what direction to go in uh, and take risk to go forward in that kind of world. That's, that's something else I think I'm good at. So resilience and tolerance of risk. Those good answers. Thank you very much. And I think they're great tips. And I'm sure that every entrepreneur has to go through those to get to the to the final product. And actually, it probably changes the landscape of where you started to actually the, the final journey. Mm-hmm. Looking back on your career, we've obviously heard mm-hmm. how you were a doctor within the NHS between 2013 and 2017. Did you have your mindset on remaining as a doctor? Or was there always this passion for you to create, obviously, a successful startup in the health and social care sector? You know- you know, I think like, um, you know, going, changing from like being a doctor to what I do now, although there's a huge amount of similarities, I'm still working within health and social care. I'm still working with people. I still love working with people. Um, uh, I, you do reflect a lot on, on what drives you and what you're good at. And if I look back to why I became a doctor, it wasn't necessarily a particularly conscious decision. It was because at the time I was quite good at science. And I quite liked, I was very into art as well. And I really liked painting and sculpture. So I was like, oh, this is interesting. How can I combine my love of like art and science? And, uh, and there are quite a lot of people in history like Da Vinci who did this quite a lot. You, and went down a career path in surgery because it can be quite like a, a melding between the two. You can take that scientific understanding and then use that to help people and, and have an aesthetic appreciation of, what, of, of, of what's going on. So that's how I got into it. And then um, I, again, didn't necessarily consciously really get out of it to do what I'm doing now. I was simply was at the time when I started Florence, I was working in um, surgery in, I was doing a surgical job in, in South London. And we had a real problem with agency staff in our department. And we had a really big reliance on agency staff. And also I would occasionally do, um, agency shifts like the weekend or holidays or whatever just to get a bit more extra money and I thought oh this is a really inefficient way the system works you've got like got a fair enough recruitment agency takes a huge amount of money out of the system um uh, it's not very like good user experience for me as a as a doctor it wasn't a very good experience for the hospital spending a lot of money not getting good quality or continuity of care so and I like making things so I tried to teach myself to build an app to code an app that would allow us in our team to like swap shifts and kind of almost create like our own internal agency in the hospital. And it didn't work at all. It was rubbish. Um, but it was like the kernel of an idea that, that kind of got things going. And then I met my co-founder and we raised a little bit of money and started to build the app properly and kind of things snowballed from there. But there was never like a conscious moment where I was like, I'm no longer a doctor. I'm now doing this thing. It just happened. And I still would... I'm probably going to go back to being a doctor when I'm done with this. So it's it's I, I like to think like hopefully you can go back into it. I do. You know, just thinking about surgeons being artistic. Um, I was thinking yeah. to myself, well, actually, it, it, surgeons do need to be artistic. I've got surgeons in my family, and yeah. they do lots of incredible work. And I mean, I would need Michelangelo and a surgeon to, to sort my face out. I'm thinking right now in my head. I wonder whether the thing, that's uh... the thing is. Um, I, yeah, no, I, you, I, I think you. Your face is fine, Adam. Wouldn't worry about <laughs> it. But, uh, but um, yeah, one of the things I noticed that I mean, I was very early in my surgical career, so I was only you know never really got much further than like taking out people's like you know abscesses or appendixes. Um, but um, one of the things I realised pretty quickly is like the things that I'm quite good at, which is doing things creatively and taking risk are not really the traits you want to have from your surgeon. You don't really want a creative risk taker to be uh, chopping you up. So maybe it's best that I've kind of moved away from that. So um, you, you've gone through the sort of idea behind um, the birth of this company. Now, Florence, I, I'm going yeah. to ask you where the, the idea of the name came from. I, I don't think I'm going to need a, a degree in figuring this out, but where, where did the name Florence come from? Uh, Florence comes from uh, the mother of nursing, Florence Nightingale. Are you always dead set on that name? Is it something no. you think actually no? No, we had like ter- we had a couple of terrible names to start with. It took us about I think almost a year before we came up with the name Florence, and it was wasn't me, it wasn't me or my co-founder. It was someone on our team called Alex, who was like, "Oh, this would be a good name," and we're like, "Wow, that is a good name," so we changed it. 
It used to be called, I think, Staff Angel. Staff Angel. Wow. Yeah. Any, so any, other, any other names that you can... Uh... And then before that, it was called like Listo or something. I can't even remember. But it definitely had two or three names before we arrived at Florence. So just for anyone listening, because, you know, there might be people listening yeah. to this going, I'm going to start my own company. Yeah. And they're sat down. And the first thing they've done is written down the name of the company. Yeah. Name choosing. How important is this name? And, and what sort of advice can you give when choosing your name? Uh, that's a great question. No one's ever asked me that before. Um, I would say it's important. It defines, it can be very, very, it can be a very strong thing that helps your brand and helps people understand who you are and what you stand for. So it can be super important and super powerful. And it can also be really bad if you do it badly. So if you have a company that's called something like, you know, medley x or something i don't just made that up um that's a bad name uh and uh that won't have any positive impacts on your company so if you have a really good name it can be really good for brand and really good for customers but i definitely wouldn't spend all my time agonizing over a name and i definitely made that mistake so we spent ages at the beginning trying to work out what the best name was and actually the best thing you can be doing is speaking to customers and trying to solve their problems and the name will come in later and as our example, we changed the name two or three times before we got to the one that we really liked and we love it now. Um, but you definitely don't need to have nailed the name before you're going out and doing the actually important things that you need to do to build a company. But it's, it's really clever. I mean, you know, I, I instantly, when I saw Florence, or oh, Florence Nightingale, and that's, that's mm. obviously it. But there is, there is a thing around having a very clever name. You know, one of the most famous ones, Schindler's Lifts. I think that's something that sticks with people in their brains. They just go, oh, I, you know, this sticks with me. I'm not saying that Schindler's yeah. got anything to do with lifts, but it's yeah. a very clever play on words, tasteful or not. But with Florence, yeah. it was instantly a case of, actually, this relates to health and social care. This is fantastic. We instantly yeah. know what you're talking about. So even though it doesn't okay. say Listo or Staff Angel, yeah. you know this is going to have something to do around um, health and social care. I think it's a fantastic name. Hopefully. Hopefully. Thank you. Thank you. I loved hearing about some of the other names that it could have been. And I think there's something in, it's a bit like when you name your dog or your cat or whatever, having a person's name as the name. So like both my dogs have people names. Um, but I, I just what think are your there's dog? something. What are your dogs called? I've got Ralph and Maggie. But there's just yeah. something, yeah, I just find it so much, I don't know, for me, better when it's got a human name. But um, I think on the, I, I mean, I think like, certainly one of the things that's good about, I mean, we'll talk about something more interesting than the name of the company in a second, but one of the good things about Florence as a name is like technology is like a relatively um, non-personal thing. Uh, and one of the biggest challenges we had to, we have to do day to day in building our company in health and social care, which is a quite, can be quite a technology resistant industry, is to build trust and to build empathy and I think having, as you say, Mark, having a company that's called a person's name, although it sounds really simple, it's actually very helpful in getting people to kind of, you know, personify or anthropomorphize your company and think it's like a real thing with character. Don't know. I mean, I might, I might be slightly biased because Florence is the name of one of my children as well. So it's definitely a, yeah, a good it's a, name. There. It's a good name. It's a good name. <laughs> so how, how easy was the decision for you? to leave the NHS and to start out with this venture? Was it something that you thought you would do kind of combined or did you know right from the start that actually this is what you wanted to focus your time and effort on? Um, no, I think at the, at the, as I say, at the start, it really was, it, it was like a side project that was, I thought this is an interesting, it's a big problem. It's a big problem with staffing, particularly temporary staffing within healthcare. Um, I was like, we think we can do something that helps solve that problem um and so we started to try and build it um i definitely at the time didn't wasn't thinking this is going to be my full-time job by any stretch of the imagination by any means it was definitely a side project but then over probably a period of a few months as you started to pick up pace and it started to become you know bigger and bigger and and actually the time pressure the time um requirement became more it became obvious that i was gonna to have to put medicine on a pause for a bit yeah so it definitely wasn't conscious but it became pretty obvious pretty quickly that I'd have to quit my job. Now, just talking about, obviously, you leaving the NHS and, and quitting your job. Um, yeah. 
Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll ask this now just to, to finish off your NHS days because I really do want to get into the nitty-gritty mm -hmm. of your uh, your sort of flourishing uh, business. But yeah, we're seeing it all over the news at the moment. NHS crisis, bed-blocking crisis, yeah. um, there's a staffing crisis. Is it an NHS crisis? Is it a social care crisis? Is this sort of a perpetual descent into um, anarchy that we're going to see within our health and social care sector? As, a, as an ex-GP, as, well, as an ex-GP, sorry, as an ex-NHS doctor, yeah. um, what are your thoughts on this? And, uh, I'm sorry, yeah. I'm just going to throw a curveball question in as well. Yeah. Do you feel partly guilty as well by no longer being a doctor in the NHS and seeing this going on? Uh, I'll do the second one first and I'll come back to what I think the problems are. So uh, I uh, don't feel guilty. I think if I think about it rationally, like, am I, am I, you know, I'm still very much driven by wanting to help other people, improve people's healthcare and find solutions to help, help them deal with their problems. If I think about it, I think I'm doing that in a bigger way than if I was doing it on the front line delivering care. Um, however, there is often, I mean, certainly during like the, you know, times when it's really bad or like COVID, you know, we had these big spikes in COVID. There was definitely times where I was, I felt a bit like, oh, kind of let me out it. I just want to get back into the, you know, into the front line. Um, so there's definitely times where I do feel a bit of guilt, guilt, but if I think about it, you know, um, logically, I think I'm, I think I'm having a bigger impact now than I was before. I think, um, first question uh which was um what's going on with the nhs i think loads of things i think as like baseline understanding the the challenges that we're seeing in our health and social care systems at the moment are being seen in basically every single healthcare system in the western world across the world so we've got we we are in Florence in France at the moment and in Canada. Um, so I know about those two healthcare systems, exactly the same challenges. You read the newspaper, you see exact same challenges in America, the rest of Europe, all around the world. The rebound from COVID has had a massive impact on provision of healthcare services because you've got people who are presenting later with worse worsening of their conditions compared to before. Um, and you've got a workforce that are like in extremely challenging circumstances, still having to deal with really challenging like isolation procedures, cleaning procedures, um, uh, loads of inefficiencies that come with that. So every healthcare system is in trouble. We are in quite a lot of trouble comparatively. And I think one of the core problems, whether you call it health or social care, I think the fact that we as a country split those two up so much is essentially the core problem that we need to solve. But the real thing that we need to get used to is when we built the NHS and, and, and the sort of state welfare system, like people live very different lives and people died of diseases like tuberculosis or heart attacks. And now people die, which happened quickly, relatively. Now people are living 20 or 30 years longer and dying from multi-systemic diseases like diabetes, cardiovascular disease, um, dementia, and uh, they have, we're partly a victim of our own success and that people are living longer and longer with more complex care needs. Um, and that's great, but we haven't got used to the fact that our healthcare system needs to not just adapt to provide those care, but we need to like dramatically increase the amount that we fund the provision of that healthcare because the, the needs have just changed so much. So, you know, NHS funding has gone up in the last couple of years. There are more doctors and more nurses than there ever have been before. The system is in a particularly challenging place at the moment. But long term, we as a country and as people need to basically be able to make the hard decision to go, look, if we really want people to look after people who are living longer with really complex health and care needs, we're just going to need to dramatically change the way we pay for that and ultimately suck it up and pay a lot more tax, I think. I would completely agree with that statement that we actually, we all do. And I don't think there was any, when I look at kind of the introduction, although it didn't last very long, the social care levy, there didn't yeah. really seem to be any backlash from members of the public about actually having that come out of their wages and what it was for. Yeah. So I think a lot of us, we all use the NHS and social care. Um, I don't think there would be a backlash. It's just a case of somebody in government finally putting the finger out and, and making it happen. 
Yeah, I think it's it's interesting to hear of the countries that you were talking about as well, because Adam and I met with somebody this morning and America are in exactly the same position with staffing and mm-hmm. the reputation of social care and bits and pieces. Yeah. So let's talk Florence. So for anybody listening that doesn't know, can you tell us what Florence and what what Florence is and what you and your yeah. team do? Yeah. So we're a technology company and we help um, mainly social care providers, but increasingly some healthcare providers, uh, build a flexible workforce and we also help them train and develop their staff. So one of the big challenges we're seeing in, especially in social care, is there's a really large recruitment and retention crisis. We're not bringing enough people in social care. We're not training and developing them well enough and we are losing them to other industries because they're, we're not supporting them in the right way as a generalization. Um, one of the core things that people come back with when you ask care workers, nurses, social care workers, whoever works in social care, why are you leaving? One of the core things, pay is one, obviously. Second is flexibility. And third is learning and development opportunities and the ability to progress in their careers. And we can do all of those things. Um, These aren't like necessarily hard problems to solve. Pay is a bit of a harder problem to solve because you need to work out a funding stream. But flexibility and professional development and career progression are very solvable problems. And I guess that's what we're trying to do at Florence. So practically what we do is let's say you run a care organization and you uh, have, as everyone does, shifts that need to be filled because people are off sick, you're understaffed or whatever, rather than phoning up a recruitment agency, paying a huge amount of money, um, not necessarily getting the right continuity quality of staff, you get a Florence account. And what you can do is you can, Post your shift in that, in Florence. It communicates out to all of your own staff first, so you know that all of your own staff can pick up, see all the vacant shifts and pick them up within the app. They all have their own app. And only then, if it's not picked up by one of your own staff or your staff bank, it goes out to a pool of Florence workers who are all vetted and credentialed, and you can define how much you want to pay. So you say, oh, I need a nurse. I'll pay them £20 for this night shift. And then people in the area can um, say, I'd like to see that shift. I think it's, and then we also uh, have a learning platform as well. Sorry, go on, Adam. No, 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 it's fine. I think it's, I think it's an incredible um, sort of endeavour, and I think it's a, a really innovative way around um, the workforce crisis. I mean, you know, don't get me wrong. I'm from the ilk where I wish we didn't have a workforce crisis, and yeah. we, you know, we weren't having to rely on these things. And you know, it probably does call up to questions some people listening to this about continuity. How do they secure that continuity? Yeah. But I think what you're doing is really incredible and is something that the health and social care system is needing. Um, but that's just quickly on that point about continuity, Adam. Like, you know, you've you've run care services, right? So you know you know the yeah. pain. Um I think and correct me if I'm set, if I'm not getting this right, but you as a man like you know, you know your workers want flexibility. They want to be able to manage their like rosters around their family lives, their own commitments, like life happens, they've got things they need to go and do. But as a care manager, it's really hard to offer that flexibility without basically spending your whole time trying to manage your rotor. And then, even then, you do that and you worry about your continuity of care. And it's like, has Mrs. Smith, uh, you know, Mrs. Smith and Adam, like, working together, how do we make sure that happens? And I guess that's one of the things we're trying to build in the technology as well, is going, hey, look, this is a way you can offer flexibility to your workforce, but put in things that ensure that you're getting the right matched people coming back again and again you're getting that continuity of care and ultimately your residents are getting the people that they work best with yeah and flexibility really is going to be key to no i mean not just health and social care flexibility really is key to to any workforce moving forward isn't it um and something the pandemic's shown us so 2016 florence was born um who was there at the birth you and who else was it just you or did you have i have a co-founder called dan who's the coo so was it sort of a, on the on the back of a, um, a beer mat sort of idea? It was. On a, on a <laughs> Tell us a little bit more about how you came up with it. Then. So I was kind of like thinking, I was trying to build this app in, in um, the hospital I was working at, but didn't get very far. And then I got introduced to Dan by, we had a mutual friend who was kind of kicking around a similar-ish idea, but um, uh, actually more like what Florence looks like now. So Dan was in the military and then he, was also the chairman of a housing charity that ran a couple of nursing homes. So they're having some problems recruiting staff. So we got introduced, went to the pub, and we did it on the back of a beer mat in the pub. 
and then and that, that was it. I've been drinking with Dan, so it was a really good good idea to write it down because I yeah. don't remember my evening that I had with Dan. So there's yeah. no chance I'd have been able to come up with a Florence idea and uh, I remember yeah. that. No, that was really interesting. Really, really great to know how that's that's come around. And so <laughs> <laughs> when when you and Dan came up with this idea, then how how soon from having this idea to really setting off on this journey did it did it take? Yeah. So we, I mean, the story. So. We started thinking about it and, you know, we started writing a, I guess, you know, first tip to, if you're, you know, if you think, well, I've got an idea of something I wanted, a business I want to build, how do you actually start it going? And I guess what we did is we started off by kind of putting pen to paper and like trying to write a business plan. That doesn't need to be detailed, but it needs, you know, you need to think about like, okay, who are my customers? And like, how am I going to put, uh, what's the product going to look like? How am I going to acquire my customers? You think, you know, what do the finances look like? You, there are loads of templates you can get offline, online. So we started to put together a business, bit, of business, bit of a business plan. Then you realize in that process, you go, well, hang on. Like, I don't know how this part of compliance is going to, like my compliance for my works is going to work. So you have to go off and sort that out, work that out, speak to some people, try and understand that. And it's a really good way of kind of uncovering some of the problems that, that are going to come up. Um, and then you do that and you go, that's fine, cool, that all works. And then at some point you've got to jump in and do it. And that process for us was uh, we had a bit of money, a few, few thousand pounds. And so we got a, um, you know, on, on the internet, we asked, you know, on Upwork or one of these freelance websites, if anyone could build an app for us. And neither of us had ever built technology before, so we had no idea. And, uh, and it was a complete disaster. And we spent all of our money. Uh, and it got something that just didn't work at all. It was completely useless. And it took maybe three or four months of us waiting for this. And so four months down the line, we spent all of our money and had literally nothing to show for it. Um, but it was a really good experience because then we thought, well, what are we going to do now? Like, we can't just give up. We've got to try and think of another way to do it. So what we ended up doing is in that three or four months, we got our first customer, which was the Chiswick Nursing Centre in West London. And um, uh, the team there they kind of like believed in what we we're trying to do and so over that three or four month period i just spent day in day out being in the Chiswick nursing center like understanding okay so what happens when someone doesn't turn up what do you do okay you call this number okay what happens then like what asking all these questions always asking other questions trying to really understand their problems their pain points and so even when the app was delivered and it didn't work what we decided to do then is we thought well we how can we kind of hack this together with a google sheet and that's what we ended up doing so actually what would happen is the Chiswick Nursing Centre manager would put the shifts they need filled into a Google Sheet. We set up like an automation that would send out some emails to and text messages to the nurses that we'd got signed up to our app that didn't exist. And then they would go into the Google Sheet and just write their names next to the shifts. We're like, wow, that's really simple, but that's essentially like the core functionality of the product. Um, and so in doing that process of the app not working it was a really good opportunity for us to just sit down with customers and really understand what they needed and then off the back of that we could start building again so i don't know if there's a lesson in that i guess my lesson is like um don't spend all your money trying to build an app spend your time speaking to customers to truly understand their pain point and try and find a solution that solves that core pain point in like the easiest lightest way possible and then once you've got that, you can then start to build from that. I think there's also a lesson in perseverance right there as well. And listening to your journey brings me kind of nicely on to the next question I had, which was looking at some of the st st statistics, 60% of UK startups don't make it past three years. Obviously, Florence is now on its seventh year of operations, and you've managed to secure funding and longevity. How easy for that? How easy was that for you? And also, did you have moments where you felt like throwing the towel in? Um, I've never felt like throwing, like I was actually, never felt like we were actually going to throw the towel in. Never come close to that. Uh, but definitely have moments where it's been hard and you think, oh, is this really how I want to be spending my life? You know, is this, is there easier things to be doing my time? But never got to the point of feeling like we wanted to give up. Um, how easy has it been? Um, I think it's been there have been times where it's been really hard, but it's been it, on like a macro level, it's been relatively easy 
because the problem is so bad. So if you're trying to build a, a piece of advice number two, if you want to build a company, um, find a problem that's really, really painful to people. And like staffing and social care is so painful. If you speak to basically any care provider across the country, it's their number one challenge, without a shadow of a doubt, it's, is challenges around recruitment, retention, filling shifts, people not turning up, agency, whatever it is, it's their number one challenge. And so when you're building something that is really solving, trying to solve that number one challenge, it's actually relatively easy because you can pick up the phone to any potential customer and say, are you having any problems with your staffing? And they go, yes. And you go, okay, cool. I might be able to help you. Let's see if we can help you. Um, and if another kind of rule to set yourself is unless you can have one of those, like a number of those conversations where people go, oh my God, yes, that is such a problem for me. Like think twice about the business you're trying to build. Because if what you're building is a nice to have for someone, it might make their life a bit easier, but it's not something they wake up every day thinking this is a real problem. It's going to be very hard to sell it and it's going to be very hard to like scale that solution. So yes, it's been hard at times, but we really, I think are trying to solve like the biggest problem for our customers. So in that way, it's very easy. And yeah, it's it's one of those where people will be going, and I, you know, I've met them. I've met so many people who've, who've started businesses and they've gone, this is what it's going to be. And they, they feel like the problem's there to solve. And they've either fallen because actually people aren't buying into that problem or because the, the funds aren't there. And it's, it's, it's sad to see these really great ideas not grow to fruition and not, not achieve what you've done. And, you know, I, I do want to ask, how did you go about your funding? You know, we've, we've read the articles, we've seen the headlines, Florence and it's 50 million and, and, and growing. It's incredible. So for anyone who's listening to this, what tips can you give to, um, to them around raising the funds for their business? Um, well, it's different at different stages. So, you know, in the sort of like technology world, we tend to split fundraising into these big buckets called like pre-seed, seed, series A, series B. We've just done our series B funding round and it's very different at different stages. So, you know, the first few rounds, early stage, you're really like, you know, it's kind of on a hope and a prayer. Like you don't have a product, you don't really have any customers, You've just got an idea. Maybe you've got some validation from the market or whatever. But it's very much based on like people are kind of backing you and maybe backing, they call it founder market fit. So like they're backing you and your understanding of the problem that you're trying to solve. Um, and uh, that's a very different thing to do. So let's say our last funding round, which is like quite, quite a big series B, which is a lot more about really like intricate details of the business like what are your marketing acquisition costs via this channel and like what does that turn into into that terms of lifetime value of your customers and lots of stuff about financial models and unit economics and and quite like technical number stuff and it's very different in different stages i guess the core bit of advice for me if i was to say what what sits across all of those things i think having a investors look out for people that really understand their customers and really care about their customers and really understand about their problem. Same thing again, understand the problem, um, are willing to like learn and are curious and are coachable and, um, have a sort of visual what they want to do, but can take on feedback and like execute on that. Um, and those are kind of two things that, that, that come up again and again. And I think just practically, if you're trying to raise money, if let's say you're early on in business at the moment and you're trying to raise money, you've got to kiss a load of frogs. It's like any sales process. You've got to, if you think you're going to raise money from two investors, plan to speak to 200 investors, um, if you, which is probably the ratio actually. Yeah, at every round, probably speak, you have to try and speak to about 100 people to get one person interested. And obviously it goes through a funnel of like, reach out to 100 people, get meetings with 30, get second meetings with 10, you know, due diligence with five and then one term sheet. Um, but you've just got to really commit to doing the volume of speaking to a lot and a lot of people. Does that answer the question, Mark? I've probably garbled a bit there. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. And yeah, I'm really pleased to hear that you accept feedback. I think one of my biggest bugbears working in my in my day job is working with tech companies that don't have any inclination, don't want to listen to the feedback or how their their product could benefit the people that we're supporting or the teams that we're yeah. that we're working with. Do you want so to name and shame them? Oh, yeah. I'm happy to. Name you know, and shame. I was just WhatsApping Mark <laughs> in the background because you know we you converse in the background. I was just, I was just writing. By any chance, question mark? <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Are they, are they not going to sue, sue, sue you or something? You get sued? You've ever been sued? The caring have you ever been sued? No, but these are all my personal not opinions. Not yet. What my opinion One is day. is not somebody else's. But yeah, no, I know. Yeah. It could be a badge of honour. <laughs> um, looking at the vision for Florence, what you guys have got yeah. there, we've obviously heard how you've taken it into some other countries. Do you, do you plan to expand further or do you, are you happy kind of where you are? What's your vision for the next few years? Uh, I want to get to, I think there's a huge, like, there's so much opportunity within healthcare, health and social care to build technology that like really supports people to like work as hard, work the way they want to work. And we like, we're really, really passionate about helping frontline health and social care workers to like live an easier life. That's ultimately like why, why, why we do what we're doing. Um, and there's so far we can go with that in the UK, other countries, building products, whatever it is. Um, there's, a, there's a lot more we can do. Um, and we've got loads of stuff we want to do. Um, the challenge is more about focus rather than like opportunities. And that's one of the big challenges we face at the moment is when you're presented with so many different things you can do is how do you nail down onto what really is the most impactful thing, the thing that really will help people the most. Um, but in answer to your question, you know, I feel very lucky. Not many people get the ability to, you know, we've just did this big funding round, which is great, and means you can build an amazing team, which we've got, um, and do some really cool, exciting, fun projects. Very few people are lucky enough to be able to do that. And I like, I'm very grateful um, that we're in that position and that we've got years ahead of us where we can deploy that capital and build some fun stuff and impact lots of customers. So um, I think it's just for us, it's about having fun and just keeping on trying to do cool stuff and enjoying ourselves. I mean, I suppose some of that is luck, Charles, and, you know, and I can understand you saying that you feel lucky, but that is hard work and perseverance. That's seeing challenges as opportunities. And, you know, it really comes back to that adversity, you know, of not getting beaten yeah. down and not, not wanting to give up. I commend you yeah. for, for what you've done. Um, so, I mean, one of the big problems we've spoken about is recruitment, it is staffing, and mm -hmm. you know, not to get too, too political, we've had a, a lot go on in this country in the last four or five years. Um, yeah. Brexit, has that been difficult? Will that be difficult for future businesses? And what sort of advice can you give around that now that we've got these murky waters of international recruitment and gosh knows what's going on? Yeah, I think like when like Brexit actually happened, there was definitely a um, an impact on that on the care workforce, huge impact, uh, especially in certain parts of the country. Like London, the southeast have a big had a big reliance on uh, non UK EU workforce. Um, I actually think that we've kind of gone a bit past that, and the, the it's kind of like the 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 biggest thing that's impacting the post the, the recruitment pressures at the moment aka like really, really like historically low unemployment, which we're seeing across loads of uh, economies um, and probably as a result of COVID, lots of people leaving the workforce, taking early retirement, long-term sick leave, mental health conditions, uh, un healthcare requirements that are like not being met by the NHS because of um, backlogs. It means loads of people are leaving the workforce. Unemployment is really, really low. And we know that traditionally when unemployment is low, social care in particular finds it challenging to recruit. Um, so I think one of the things we'll need to see before social care recruitment crisis abates, loads of stuff we need to do around improving the pay, improving conditions, improving career progression. Um, but from a wider economic perspective, we need to see like labour, workforce participation go back up again and people come back, people getting back to work. But that's so multifactorial. And I think like loads of governments are trying to solve that at the moment. There definitely seems to be a shift in working culture. I think 
I've expressed my love for TikTok before, but and you see it all over, not just the UK. So many people talking about actually what they want from life, and it's not just work. And yeah, yeah. I had an eye on a meeting actually about that they're trying to change it from work-life balance to life-work balance, and all of this. But yeah, I definitely think work working conditions is something that all of us, regardless of what sector we work in, need to look at for the workforce. But I'm 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 very like long-term bullish on uh, the health and social care workforce because yes. It's a bit of a chat. It's challenging at the moment, but you know, you fast forward 10, 20 years into the future, and a lot of jobs that exist today, not in health and social care, like in the normal, in the real, in like normal economy, uh, won't exist. So, you know, we'll see automation get rid of things like people that drive taxis or um, deliver delivery, uh, deliver parcels, whatever. Hundreds of jobs will be automated away in the next few decades. Now, it's going to be almost impossible or one of the last jobs to be automated away will be care work, people that work in care, because it's really, really hard to automate like com- care, compassion, offering someone your hand, helping through a challenging time, lending them support. Those are really, really hard things to automate. So as we see a lot of these jobs disappear and more and more people have caring responsibilities, um, I think the future of the care workforce is actually going to be really, really bright because we as a society are going to realise that it's actually like the ultimate resilient career that's going to survive over the decades. I absolutely agree. And I think I've read some reports that have come out about tech and robots and actually them having a negative impact kind of in Japan and China on the people that are being supported. Yeah. And I know that obviously it's apprenticeship week um, this week and... Yeah, I know that we've been involved in a lot of conversations to kind of upskill and the knowledge for people that are looking at doing apprenticeships and social care repeatedly yeah. is on that list of one of the only long-term growing growing sectors. Yeah. And then we've what, just got to do our job as a society, as employers, to make sure that we're bringing people in and we're making sure that we present that opportunity of a career in care in the right way. 100%. Completely agree there. I want to talk to you about um, your cost of living survey that Florence undertook. So some of the stats, I think they did shock me. Um, They did kind of hit home about how our workforces across healthcare and social care have been affected. I don't know, part of me thought, why am I so impacted by those stats? Because in the back of my mind, I thought, well, it's probably obvious that a lot of people are being impacted. Where did that survey idea come from? What do you hope to achieve from those results? Was it more of an awareness or do you plan to kind of use it to make changes somewhere or? Um, I think the idea of the survey is just because speaking to lots of our customers, nurses and care workers who are, uh, we could just hear the challenges they're having and you could hear it day in, day out, like struggling to, you know, put food on the table or pay their energy bills or put petrol in their car or whatever it was. So I guess it was a way of just like structuring that, going out to 2,000 people saying, hey, look, tell us what you're thinking. And then you, you can come back with a form to form thing on that. Like, what do we want to do with it? I think, so, yeah, I mean, a lot of it's about awareness. If, it, if, we, if the right people can see those kind of things and it informs future pay awards for people working in health and care, then like, great. That's not the intention. Though. The intention was more just to, I guess, amplify people's voices. Um, well, yes, and you know, it's. I, I do reports myself. Obviously, in my day job, I write um, some big reports for the NHS and for our organisation. And it, it really is about making sure that people have a platform now to get their voices out there because it's been too long, especially within social care, where we haven't even been listened to. Or we've not had that opportunity. We've not been able to say what's really going on. So I think um, it, it's great that that report's out there. Although, again, cost of living is, is a terrible thing that people are going through at this moment. Mm. Um, so for providers and you know we're not the BBC we don't mind doing a bit of a plug here why should they choose Florence why should why why should a, why should a provider be invested in Florence rather than just going to a, a recruitment agency uh, because you're, it will make it much easier to fill your shift vacancies you don't have to spend all your time worrying about it, it does it automatically you will be able to make sure that your own staff have the ability to work flexibly and pick up those shifts. So you reduce your agency usage. And then ultimately, if you do have to use some agency staff, you define how much you want to pay. So you save a lot of money. So it um, makes your job quicker and you can fill your shifts for cheaper and your staff are happier. 
So what about for the the the, the care workers or the, the you know the care professionals as we are yeah. we, we're more liking to call them now? And what's the benefits for them for for joining you over a, um, an agency or like say a bank bank contract with someone? Uh, again, it's um, you. I think if you join Florence as a care care worker care professional, uh, you have more flexibility. Uh, you can choose. You can see all thousands of shifts that are around you. You can see ratings that other people have given the places that you're going to go and work. You can build favorites lists. You can get invited by the same people back again and again, um, get paid instantly, earn more money, lots of great advantages. Thank you very much. So you briefly touched earlier at, near the beginning of the podcast around your learning platform. Now, either Adam and I, I can't remember which one, cut you short, but can you tell us more about the learning platform the CPD Academy and what yeah. Florence has to offer. Sure. Um, uh, Florence Academy is uh, a, a learning platform for health and social care. We built it because we wanted to help support the nurses and care work, care professionals on Florence to professionally develop and learn and, and you know operate at, at the best level of skill they can. Um, and it's free. Uh, so anyone can go visit academy.florence.co.uk and uh, there's about 70 courses all accredited um, uh, by different organizations depending on what the course is uh, and uh, you can do your training there. And it's going to be amazing. We've got so many cool ideas on what we're going to do there. We're starting to build webinars. People are going to be able to build their own portfolios and professional passports. So you don't have to do the same mandatory training every time you go to a new job. You can start bringing that kind of stuff with you. Um, and if you run a care organization you can use Florence Academy to train your own staff as well get really good insights into their learning I think uh, again you're, you're taking problems a lot of people will sit there and go God, I wish I thought of that I wish I wish I thought of that and there are people obviously who have thought about this and it's going to be great to have a mm. conversation at some point Charles in the future because this is something that the people are crying out for is the fact that mandatory training takes up so much time not only yeah. time it takes up so much money you know, going from role to role and, you know, you, you take into account what between four to, to four days to three weeks to really join a, a company in a, in a social care role because of security checks and, yeah. and you've got your induction, your care certificate, your mandatory training that needs to yeah. be repeated. I think this is a really clever idea that is 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 going to address a, a very real problem. But when when are you thinking this is really going to take off the ground? It's, it's there. It's ready. It's going. It's taken off. It's like... Right. Space rocket. I'll tell you what, Adam, we could have, we could set up if you're, if any of your listeners wanted to try it out, we can set up like a, you know, Florence Academy forward slash the caring view or something, and then they can get some free trial or something. I mean, that'd that. be fantastic. And, you know, I'm sure our listeners would, would love to use that. That's brilliant. Thank you, Charles. Now, so just quickly before we, we finish off, I want to know a little bit more about your rotor system um, yeah. and how it integrates with, with say, other um, digital yeah. records out there. So does it integrate with digital social care records, with EMARS? That's a great question. And actually, it's a really good example of when we built something that we thought was a good idea, but wasn't necessarily a big problem. So we don't really we've changed our rotoring platform a little bit because what we used to think is that care providers had a really big challenge with rostering their staff and they do, but their biggest challenge is not about rostering their staff. It's about trying to fill those vacant shifts. So you can use our, um, uh, our, our rotoring platform, but it's not something we really believe in that heavily at the moment. What we think you should use is Florence, our, our shift filling platform and it's much easier it solves their problems um and uh uh we think offers a lot of value like one day we're probably going to come back and try and solve the rotoring problem but that's not today another thing quite often discussed in social care so you'll literally grab it by the horns and roll with it and i think just listening to you and adam talking about kind of the do your training once and take that with you yeah, I think yeah. so many people have spoken about actually wouldn't it be great to use blockchain or let's just have one and people can just carry it across. Yeah. Nobody's actually done anything yeah. with that. But yeah, so it's great to hear that Florence is doing that. So finally, great. the podcast series is all about influential um, people and innovators. What advice do you have for budding entrepreneurs hoping to impact people's lives with the next big thing in social care? Um, I think there's so much opportunity in social care to, to innovate and do things better. Um, the 
biggest barrier is just starting. So start. Um, and there's no time. The best time to start was six months ago. The second best time is today. So start. And the way you start is by speaking to as many customers as, pro as, as possible, trying to understand their problem as much as you can, really identify whether it is a real problem for them, and then try and find the lightest weight solution you can build to improving their problem. Even if it's just improving their problem a little bit. And then once you've improved that problem a little bit and a customer's saying that's making my life a bit easier, then you can go and start building on that and iterating on that. So just start, speak to customers and really understand the problem. Charles, it's been an absolute, well, I say it's been a pleasure. It's always it's always a pleasure to talk to you, but it's been a pleasure to, to really learn from you and your achievements that you've, uh, you've, you've got with Florence and, you know, to your whole team. You know, I think it's an absolute um, mm. a, a delight to see. And I think, I'm hoping people who are listening to this have jotted down um, some, some tidbits to take away, have probably put this on pause and gone to, to replay it a couple of times. I know I'm looking forward to, to listening back to it. Um, I just want to thank you for, for sharing um, your journey with us with Florence. And, you know, if there's anything more we can do, if there's any, any more we can, we can do to get this out to our listeners, um, even around Florence, you know, anyone who is listening – www.florence.co.uk um, all your information um, can be found there well I think firstly thanks for having me I've really enjoyed the conversation so and really appreciate the invite it's, a bit, it's an honour uh, but I've, I was helped with advice and uh, support by a lot of people along the way as well so um, if anyone is listening to this and has any questions or like wants some help or advice just thinking of starting a business find me on LinkedIn Charles Armitage and send me a message and I'll uh, be sure to answer. That's fantastic. What we'll do is we'll make sure that all the details of Florence, your links and your LinkedIn profile are in the description for the podcast for when we share it out so people have got um, direct access to bombard you with the many questions I'm Great. sure they will have. Uh, this has been the Caring View podcast. Again, this is episode two in our influential leaders, innovators and entrepreneurs. Um, be sure to keep following us as we have got a long list of people um, that we are planning on talking to and, and many that Mark and I know, many that we don't know. Um, so it's going to be an exciting journey for both myself and Mark. Uh, but for now, thank you very much for listening and we will see you in our next episode. Take care. Thank you for listening to The Caring View. You can find us on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, as well as various podcasting sites. So don't forget to subscribe, like, and share to become part of the conversation.